You're listening to Leading Up with Udemy. This podcast is your guide to developing your skills as an emerging or seasoned leader. I'm Alan Todd, your host and the Vice President of Leadership Development at Udemy. Together, we can work, lead, and live differently to create a better world. I was super excited to have Lindsay Pollock on the podcast this week. I love how she talked about all generations have three needs, freedom, clarity, and connection. Whether you're a baby boomer, Gen X, millennial, Gen Z, we all have that in common. When you're developing a workplace policy, when you're becoming a manager for the first time, are you giving everybody a level of freedom to express themselves and what they want, a level of clarity of what's expected, and a level of connection to feeling a sense of belonging on your team and in the workplace? This week, I'm speaking with New York Times bestselling author and generational translator, Lindsay Pollack. Lindsay's the author of four books, including Becoming the Boss and The Remix, How to Lead and Succeed in the Multi-Generational Workplace. She's delivered keynote speeches for more than 300 organizations, including Fortune 100 companies and Ivy League universities. And a relatable qualification for many of our listeners who are emerging leaders, she credits her passion for generational diversity to her time as a dorm RA at Yale. Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Alan. I'm glad to be here. So, Lindsay, one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you is many of our listeners are early career. These are the emerging leaders, the new leaders, those that want to step up to be leaders. And you literally wrote the book for those people becoming the boss. So how did you come to focus on career advice for people new to the workforce? I'm so glad we're, we're starting that question. It starts in my time as an RA, my senior year. I was overseeing a group of young women um, who were first years in college, and I loved it. I loved the mentoring. And what I really liked was sort of sharing what I had been through and finding a way to use it, right? And say, oh, I made that mistake. Don't do it. I also liked kind of being this translator between the administration and the first year students. So I kind of had an ear on both sides. And so I, I launched my career, worked for a little while at a magazine called Working Woman in their website division. And I just kept feeling like I couldn't find advice for me just starting out in my career. So I decided, as many people do, to fix that problem myself. And I wrote my first book called Getting from College to Career, which launched a speaking business speaking to college students and recent graduates about how to get your first job. And I was starting to manage people and said, well, where's the advice for me on this? So I researched and wrote Becoming the Boss. And, and what I've really found is when you're seeking advice and you can't find it, there are so many people who want to help. And I try to be kind of the repository for all of the good ideas and mistakes to avoid for every stage of your career. But I, I started because I couldn't find what I needed. Yeah. So getting from college to career it's about to go into its third edition in 2024. So why is its message so enduring? And maybe follow that with like, what's new? It's been so interesting to go back to the first edition, which came out in 2007. And I say things like, I think LinkedIn might turn into something, you know? So <laughs> it was a long time ago. I think the book has, has really endured because transition moments are always tough, right? How do I get from one thing to another? And when you've spent you know, 22 years of your life being a student, it's a huge change to enter the workplace. And it's not because you're not intelligent. 
it's just kind of like moving to a different country. And so I really take that transition very seriously of taking the skills that you have as a student and learning how to translate them. And and what's really interesting about redoing the book in the third edition is so much hasn't changed, right? It's about relationships. It's about knowing yourself and what you want. It's about being really flexible in finding your path and and knowing that it's not going to go right the first time. What's changed is the technology, of course, but I was actually struck by how much is just the same and classic evergreen advice. Yeah, I love that. So relationships, know yourself, be flexible. How about advice for someone stepping into their first management or leadership position? So once they achieve that kind of self-awareness, what would be the next thing that you would advise? There, there are two quotes that I always come back to and share when I do workshops for people in that situation. Um, the first is becoming a manager is not a promotion. It's a career change. It is a totally different job to go from being a salesperson to being a sales manager, from being a you know individual contributor to managing other people. It is a different job, which leads to the second quote from one of my mentors and people I admire, Marshall Goldsmith, who's kind of the OG of, of all of this leadership and coaching. He wrote a book called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And so it's really this mindset. It's not keep doing what you're doing and, and you'll learn how to manage. It's a different skill. And when you think of it that way, you suddenly open your mind and say, oh, I have to learn how to do some new things. And that's how I would approach becoming a manager for the first time. I love that. Gallup has done quite a bit of research on frontline leaders, and they say that the number one reason that somebody gets promoted into management is success in the prior position. So they're the best salesperson. And the second biggest reason they get promoted is tenure. You know, he's been around. She's been around for a long time. Two things that obviously set you up on the wrong path. So I love your advice. It makes perfect sense. So when you wrote Becoming the Boss, the young generation in the workforce were the millennials. Now it's Gen Z is capturing everyone's attention. So what has changed between how you advised millennials to grow leadership skills versus how you would now advise Gen Z, if anything? It's so funny. That was what got me into researching and and writing about generational diversity. I'm a a Gen X. I'm in my 40s. And I was always kind of a big sister to the millennials. And I just started to notice how everyone was treating them like they came from a different planet. You know, who are these people who are coming in and using the internet? And so much of what they needed and wanted to learn was the same as what I did. You just have to tweak it. And so that's really how I approach the generational change is what are the expectations you're bringing to the workplace and what are the experiences you have or haven't had? And I never, ever hear employers say that young leaders aren't smart. It's just they don't seem to have the, quote, common sense skills that are expected of people in leadership. So what that comes down to is talking to somebody face-to-face and having a really difficult conversation. Well, I grew up having to talk to everybody because there there was no internet, right? You either talked to them on the phone or you talked in person. So I just simply had more experience doing that. And so when you think about what we take for granted in a leader, having difficult conversations, motivating people, setting an agenda, giving feedback, we are doing less of that the more we go online. What I think is a huge advantage, particularly Gen Z, is how video-focused they've been with YouTube and TikTok and Instagram. They're very, very open to learning something quickly. And so I think these sort of short bursts of, here's how to give feedback, 
here's some really good tips on having a difficult conversation. I find they're very open to that because they've been relying on video to teach them for their whole lives, whereas other people thought maybe I have to take a year-long course. So I think the quick burst, the micro-learning, you know, as Udemy yeah. is so good at, I think is really valuable for the younger generation. Yeah. So I am still thrilled to admit that I am still in my 50s. And I am on the borderline between a baby boomer and a Gen Xer, but I'm technically a baby boomer. But I'm wondering if you could just give us the the full generational talk, what they are and what you've discovered by thinking about that. You got it. I'll, I'll give an overview of the generations, but I want to say why, which is that we're a five-generation workplace for the first time in history. And so to be successful at any stage of your career, but particularly when you're starting out, you have to understand that there are people who see the world differently from you. And one of the reasons for that, besides personality and gender and, and functional responsibility, is that when people enter the workforce at different times in different eras, they just have a different experience. And if you can master that, you're going to win with your career because you're going to leverage all the different experiences and expertise. So, so that's the reason. Um, also, people are working a lot longer than they ever did before. So where you used to maybe have to get along with people 20 years older or younger than you, now it might be someone 50 years older or younger than you. So, so that's kind of the why. The generations are the traditionalists or World War II generation. You're Warren Buffett's, you're uh, Rupert Murdoch's born uh, before 1945 or so. Baby boomers are born 1946 to 64, largest generation ever born into the U.S. Uh, Gen Xers uh, like me are born between 1965 and 1980. We're a very small generation. A lot of people don't even acknowledge the Xers. We were called the baby bust. A lot of Xers feel like we came in and nobody adapted to us because the boomers were so big. So a lot of Xers say, why are we talking about generations? Nobody told me this stuff because we were too small. Then you have the millennials who are primarily, but not entirely the children of the boomers. So they're bigger than the Xers, but not as big as the boomers. Millennials are born about 1981 to 1996 or so. And then you have the Gen Zs who are a little bit smaller than the millennials, primarily children of Xers. Gen Zs are born about 1997 to 2013-ish or so. We're now out of letters. We had X. Millennials are called Gen Y. Sometimes we have Z. They're calling young kids born today Gen Alpha. But I have a feeling where we're going is shorter cohorts. And in fact, in Asia, they go by decade, children of the 70s, children of the 80s. So even if you don't feel like any of those terms describe you, that's kind of how they break down in the workplace in terms of the eras in which people were born and started working. So I'd love to hear, because I've heard you talk about this before, just about the stereotypes. And so I want to know, what are they? What can we learn from them? Because I think they're interesting and there's probably a kernel of truth in everything. Yeah, that's a great introduction. A lot of it has to do with technology and communication. So the stereotype of the traditionalists or the baby boomers is they don't like technology. They only want to talk face-to-face. -face. They're slower at getting things done. They're not adapting to the times. I rarely find that true, but sometimes it does take a baby boomer a little longer to use a technology. It doesn't mean they can't. It just means it doesn't come intuitively to them. Uh, Gen Xers, the knock on us is we have a bad attitude, right? We are always ignored. We don't want to party with other people. We want to eat lunch at our desks. There is some truth to that. 
Gen Xers are also the most entrepreneurial of the generations. Uh, You look at the whole boom of Silicon Valley entrepreneurship that comes out of Gen X, Google, and and so forth. And I think it's true that Xers sometimes feel like outsiders. I think our superpower is that we're bilingual. We had to speak boomer for half of our careers, and then we had to adapt to millennials. So I don't think it's an accident that I'm an Xer uh, really engaged in this work. Millennials are probably the most stereotyped generation because they came along when the internet was around to do that. Lazy Entitled Narcissists is the headline of uh, Time Magazine, wanting trophies for participation, overly parented, overly taught, overly coddled, had the internet at their fingertips. But on the flip side, the highest rate of student debt, the first generation to not be as financially successful as their parents' generation, you know, 9-11 and the crisis of 2008 and pandemic, just a lot of really difficult economic situations. Gen Zs are the, the true digital natives, the TikTok generation, the stereotype is they have short attention spans, but also incredibly self-sufficient, incredibly concerned about meaning and purpose and making a mark in the world. So there, there's pros and cons to every generation. But I think where I would direct people's attention is, are you ever talking about people's age in a negative way? So OK Boomer would be the kind of knock on the older or criticizing the younger. We have this tendency to do that And I would point out, we are all going to be every age. We all know people who are every age. And just to think twice before judging somebody based on how old they are. Yeah, makes perfect sense. So if you think about the tensions between generations, right? Baby boomers don't understand Gen Z or Gen X feels forgotten, like some of that stuff. Can you uh, give us like some of the similarities? What are the things that you think are consistent? And then we'll talk about what are the tensions? Yeah, I think there are three words I would use that I think everybody wants at work and they want in very different ways. And the words are freedom, clarity, and connection. I think a lot of Gen Xers and boomers wanted freedom by, you know, getting our driver's license, right? I can leave the house. And now 16-year-olds get their driver's license at half the rate of Xers and boomers because they want freedom in terms of workplace flexibility. They want freedom to express themselves on social media. The desire is the same, the mechanism might be different. Clarity. I want to know, you know, what time do we start work? What time do we get done? You know, and I might want to know that in terms of workplace rules. Uh, A Gen Z or a millennial might want to know clarity in terms of what your policies are in ChatGPT, right? So (laughs) we have the same need. And connection, I just think, is human. And I think a lot of older workers sort of knee-jerk and say, we have to be in the office because we have to connect and we have to build relationships. And I think a Gen Z would say, I can build relationships online just as well as I can in person. Please don't judge my relationships as less meaningful or real because they happen in a virtual environment. So when you're developing a workplace policy, when you're becoming a manager for the first time, are you giving everybody a level of freedom to express themselves and what they want, a level of clarity of what's expected, and a level of connection to feeling a sense of belonging on your team and in the workplace? buzz around Gen AI isn't going anywhere. Leaders and managers are key to identifying how their companies can use the technology and creating a plan to grow their employees' skills. Learn how Udemy can help at business.udemy.com forward slash Gen AI now.
I'm switching gears to hybrid work because I'm wondering about that, you know, as you think about them learning differently, senior leaders want everybody back in. You can see the headlines of CEOs that say, yeah, I just, I want everybody back in. That's great. And then you can see everybody else. It feels like the genie's out of the bottle and they've tasted freedom and office buildings are half empty across America. And so I'm wondering first, how do you see the hybrid work battle playing out? It's a great question. And it is probably what I talk about with my clients more than anything. My take is the genie's out of the bottle, but that doesn't mean that everybody should have a free-for-all. I think the most important thing is clarity. We're in the workforce or in the workplace, in the office, three days a week. And here is why. Because we are going to use that time to collaborate because I want you to learn. This sort of arbitrary four, one, three, two, or at your discretion, I think is a big mistake because people don't know what success looks like. So, you know, if you're an employer, I would say, have a plan and explain why you need people to do that. I think having no flexibility is just not going to fly anymore. But I do think if you're a company that says we are in person five days a week because we are a collaborative environment, you're giving people the opportunity to say, that's not really a fit for me. So I'm going to go work elsewhere. So I think be honest about what your workplace needs and why. And I think that Gen Zs in particular are very appreciative of the honesty of this is what our policy is. And these are the kinds of people we need. If you're somebody who wants to work from home, this may just not be the right environment for you. But, and I think this will lead into what I'm guessing your second question is, if you choose to have flexibility, you have to have a plan to make up for what is lost about not being in person. I think it's doable. You just have to have a plan for it. Yeah, so let's go into that. How can we be successful? And really through the lens of early career, because you and I had the opportunity to stand around the water cooler, the fax machine, the lunch break room, all of those things. What have they lost and what can they do about it? So I love that you brought up how we learned. My best mentoring and learning story ever, I interned at a nonprofit when I was in college and it was a tiny little office and the executive director said, Lindsay, come sit in my office and listen to me talk on the phone. And for hours, I would listen to her fundraise and have difficult conversations and handle vendors and negotiate price. She didn't give me a handbook saying, here is how to communicate. I apprenticed with someone who was successful. And I think in an office environment or a retail environment, you're constantly overhearing and observing. You're using your eyes, you're using your ears. Well, like you said, that went away. And so what I think we have to do as leaders, and I think if you're an early career person listening to this, you have to ask for opportunities and say, hey, Alan, could I come sit in your office while you do that? I know we're going to be on Zoom, but can I log in a little early so you can tell me what your plan is? Can you BCC me on a couple of emails where you're writing something complicated so I can observe how you do it? We have to now create opportunities for things that used to happen by accident. I'll, I'll tell you a really funny anecdote. During COVID, I did a lot of early career training. The number one question I got from new employees who had never worked before was about what time do I stop work? Because if you're in an office, you see people put their coats on and leave. When you're working from home, you don't know. Is it okay to close my laptop now? Are we done? You know, at five o'clock isn't really a thing anymore. So I thought that was so telling about how much we don't know, even if we're really smart and really motivated when we're not in an environment where we can see other people. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I haven't heard somebody articulate it the way you have, Lindsay, but I've heard just people working late and they've had trouble with the boundaries between work and life as a result of working from home. So not just younger generations, everybody's trying to figure that out. I want to ask, this is 
a topic about the current generation that's really been bothering me, and there's massive amounts of data about it, but let's just talk about it. I'll start with this. Jonathan Haidt from NYU wrote a popular book, The Coddling of the American Mind, and he argued that millennials have become fragile because they've been protected from discomfort and challenging ideas and trigger warnings and things like that. So are they fragile and should managers treat them differently or what should we know about that? I'm not going to answer the question, are they fragile? Because I think everybody is an individual. What I will answer is, did millennials grow up in a time when we were more cautious about people's mental health and trauma responses and other areas of sensitivity? Yes, they did. And so you have to remove the human being from the situation, nature versus nurture, right? So for example, baby boomers went to school when the average ratio between a teacher and a student was 40 to 1. And millennials went to school when it was 20 to 1. So you had more attention. People had fewer children, right? There were things like ratings on TV shows and video games. A lot of that is really good, right? Some of that might have gone too far. But one millennial said to me, and I will never forget this, he said, you know, everyone makes a joke that our generation wants trophies for participation. He said, I never asked for a trophy. Adults kept giving them to me. So it's not like there's something fundamental in the human beings born between 1981 and 1996 that they need to be coddled. You know, I grew up in an era when people wore seatbelts. That's a good thing. Does it mean I'm risk averse because I knew to wear a seatbelt? You know, I don't think so. What I do think is important to discuss is what ramifications does that have for the workplace. And I'll give you a really clear example for a manager. A lot of managers in the baby boomer era were command and control, right? I yell at you. I tell you what to do. I expect that you'll do it. That just doesn't work with millennials and Gen Z. It doesn't. Look at every sports. It doesn't work anymore because they grew up in a different environment. You can debate all day whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. What I say is put that aside and do what works. And what works is maybe positive reinforcement. What works is, hey, Alan, I'm going to give you some coaching right now, and I'm doing it because I really care about you and I want you to help. And even if you decide that you think people should figure things out themselves and you don't want to be coddling, then all I ask is you say, hey, Alan, I'm not going to give you any information on this. I want to see how you do. You at least let them know the method to your madness. So I'm much more interested in the practicalities of what this means rather than debating whether it happened or whether it's good or bad. Yeah, I love, and that's really what I wanted to get to with that topic is what can we do? You know, how do we create the freedom, the clarity and connection? But I want to go one click deeper on this. And it's sort of another just massively troubling issue. And I've heard you talk about it, but... The Pew Charitable Trust published a piece last month saying feelings of anxiety and depression have grown to levels where virtually no one can ignore what's happening. And they pointed to a CNN Kaiser Family Foundation poll, put a number to it. They said 90% of Americans feel we are in a mental health crisis. And so some people are linking this. There's all kinds of data around sort of birth cohorts. And you've said that well-being is a big issue that you were sort of predicting for 2024 So I'd love to just get your take on well-being. I absolutely believe it is an epidemic. And what did we think was going to happen? 
we had a global pandemic. We have horrible wars raging. We have an environmental crisis. We have social media and AI that is existentially troubling. (laughs) This is, this makes sense when you look at the big picture. And I think the younger you are, the more impacted you are for two reasons. One is you're really forming your beliefs about the world at these younger ages. And secondly, there's so much less stigma. I I suffer from anxiety. I never told anyone until I was in my thirties because you just didn't do that, right? You didn't talk about these things. And so I think it's a positive that we're talking about it. Where I would take it in the workplace conversation is I just saw a study from a a different source last week that said, oh, workplace wellness programs don't work. And they looked at things like free meditation apps and, and meditation rooms. What did work, they said, was having an employer who actually cares about you, right? So mental health is not about, here's a free app. Mental health is about, are my work hours reasonable? Am I paid a fair wage? Does my boss care about me at all? And so the fix to this stuff is, you know, making sure that people are are treated well. And I think that's where we need to start. I, I, you'll laugh at this. I, I had a colleague who said a, a client brought her in and said, you know, can you do a workshop for teaching our managers how to care about our employees? And, and my friend, the speaker said, well, do they? You know, <laughs> if they don't care about yeah. them, I can't fake a way for them to actually care. And so I think this is a crisis. One of the, the phrases I like to use it, that I've heard around it, I certainly didn't create it, was mental health first aid. Just as you have someone in office who knows where the fire exits are and knows what to do if someone is injured, we need people in the office who are trained in how to identify and support people who are in crisis uh, from a mental health perspective. And I think that's no longer optional. Yeah. Uh, well, and I think it's a generational issue. I've spoken to senior leaders in big companies that are baby boomers. And they've said, you know, there's so many things going on in the workplace that I grew up in. We didn't talk about that stuff. And they also grew up in a world where having no freedom in your calendar was a sense of pride. So I would never want to waste five minutes of a team meeting to check in and say, Lindsay, how are you doing? Right? So there's this whole generation there. And and they're the ones that to me are the big surprise that emotional intelligence skills are all these things that are crowding out the things where they're like, no, let's get to the agenda. We don't have time to check in and see how everybody's weekend was. And now we're finding out from all this research that maybe that those check-ins matter. And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts? What kind of advice do you have for the baby boomers to sort of get better at this? So Google did a study in, in 2008, and then they replicated it in 2018 called Project Oxygen. And it was a study of what made a good manager. And they wanted data, very, very Google. And one of the things that came out was people said, you know, I will work the hardest and and be most successful for a manager who cares about me. And Google, I think, was probably like, what? You know, (laughs) who cares? And I actually think going back as far as you want in history, it was the leaders who cared that were the most successful. It was the leaders who said, how are you at the right moment? Maybe they weren't doing it publicly. Maybe it wasn't, you know, always going on. But I think even when you hear about the really tough, you know, sports coaches and that sort of thing, people really want to know that someone cares. And even if they express that in a different way. So I think this sort of command and control, don't talk about personal things at work, it's just over. And I think it was probably over before March 2020. And if it wasn't over then, boy, is it over now. Because once you bring work into the home as a matter of necessity, 
you cannot pretend that people are not human beings. I think it was a very white male dominated upper middle class baby boomer phenomenon to pretend that nobody had a life because everybody had a, a wife you know, at home. But I think we all know that that's not the case anymore. Now, I want to say, though, it doesn't mean that you have to talk about people's feelings all day. It doesn't mean that there's license to talk about your personal life all day long. What it means is you acknowledge that people have a life. And if you're uncomfortable with the level of sharing, you have somewhere to refer people to. But I I don't want to say, I get a lot of people say, my Gen Z's come in and they talk about their feelings all day long. That isn't okay, right? But you do have to have an opportunity to show that you're a human being, but it can't go too far. So let's talk about multi-generational leadership. So it's a requirement today. It's not an option. You basically just kind of laid down the law for baby boomers. I totally agree with you. I also like your perspective that we're also not going to sit around and talk about your feelings all day. We're a business. We have to get things done, but we want to maximize our ability to cooperate to get things done. So let's see if we can talk about the benefits of multi-generational leadership. What is it and how do we do it? Maybe some tips on on what to think about. So people always ask me, what are the best multi-generational environments in a workplace context that I observe? And I always say political campaigns, because if a group of people are working to get someone elected who they really believe in and, and feel that's important, right? It's very consequential. I'm delighted that the person phone banking next to me is 50 years older than I am because they're going to reach that demographic and I'm going to reach mine. And and we're so grateful to have that diversity because we believe in it. So the idea of everybody, you know, steering in the same direction, having a very, very clear goal that you believe in, if other people believe in that, the age differences kind of fall away, right? And that you appreciate if all of us working together were the same age, we wouldn't be as successful because we wouldn't know how to, to sell it and market to other people. So I think that's kind of a good idea to have in mind. The book I wrote called The Remix is really about the fact that it's not about the baby boomers win with their idea and their way and the millennials lose or vice versa. Remixes are when you take a classic song and you modernize it, right? And this DJ who I interviewed when I wrote the book told me that when she plays a wedding, which is usually a multi-generational family event, she said, when the dance floor is empty, I play a remix because the older people recognize the classic song and they feel included and come and dance. The younger people recognize the newer version and they feel included and come and dance. So the goal of being a multi-generational leader at any age is to say two things. I know my history. I'm going to learn what came before me and take the best of that. And I'm going to keep up with the times no matter how old I get and take the best of that. It's and, not or. It's making the pie larger. I love it. You call them perennial skills. Yeah, it's not my word. I can't take credit. Gina Pell uh, invented that term. She's a tech entrepreneur. But being a perennial is to know your history and keep up with the times. So I like the idea of the remix. So let's talk about some ideas for any of the generations, but I'm thinking for younger to older, like mentoring and from older to younger, reverse mentoring. Talk about that as as a concept that makes both a stronger whole. Yeah, I have three based on the freedom, clarity, and connection that we talked about. Um, When it comes to freedom, people want to weigh in on their own careers, right? They don't want to feel like they're being told what to do. So the rule is never assume, always ask. That is, you know, you meet someone on your team, they're 75 years old, and you think, oh, they must want to retire. Maybe not. Maybe they want to work harder than they've ever worked. You are a younger manager of an older employee, and you think, oh, they're going to resent me. They're going to think I'm too young. Nope. Maybe they are sick of managing people, and they are delighted to just get their job done. So never make an assumption 
also about what somebody wants. Oh, they must want a day off. No, they'd probably rather have more money, right? Oh, they like to be praised in public. No, this person is actually really shy. So give people the freedom to tell you. And a quick way to do that, when you're in a one-on-one with someone you manage, let them talk first. Love it. Let them talk first. So talk about leadership communications. Communication. Clarity, clarity, clarity. Communicate about how you communicate. I talk about having a personal user guide. So if you're the boss, no matter how new you are, say, hey, this is how I best work. You know, mornings are really tough for me. I always have a lot of work to catch up on. If you want to grab me, after 12 is really the best time of day. You know what? I'm a really big texter. It's hard for me to pick up my phone because I'm often with our customers. So I'd prefer that you text. Just talk about it. And be clear on your terminology. How many people do you know who say, call me anytime? I'm always available. No, you're not. (laughs) You're not. So be honest with me. What's the best time? It's an act of generosity as a leader to tell people how to communicate with you. And the rule there, clear is kind. People think they're being, you know, too strict, but it is valuable. It is kind to tell people how to get in touch with you. Clear is kind. Third, when it comes to connection, focus on the why, not the how. So for example, you're a new leader and you want everybody to use Slack instead of sending emails, right? You're going to implement Slack on your team and you're worried that your older employees don't want to do it. Well, instead of saying, we're now going to use Slack and this is how to use Slack and this is how you put it on your blah, blah, blah. Instead say, here's why we're going to use Slack. I really want us to be able to, you know, develop rapport and I want to be able to get in touch with blah, 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 blah. The why is so much more important than the how for any generation. It might take you a little longer. You might do it differently. But if you understand the reason behind something, you're much more likely to embrace it. So freedom, clarity, connection. Yeah, I love it. And are there universal truths? Are there anything that, that we need to think about, again, an emerging leader, young leader, new in position, about communicating and working and getting things done across generation? The only thing I would say to new leaders, and this has been true forever, it's not unique to Gen Z, you don't know what came before. I really encourage, even if you're just new to an organization, to really learn that history, to really become a student of what happened in an organization, why it was founded the way it was, doesn't mean you have to do things that way. Remember, being a perennial, it's not just keeping up with the times, it's knowing the history. And some of the more tenured employees can be absolute gold mines of information when it comes to that stuff. Show that you respect what came before, even if you are coming in as an agent of change. I think that's so valuable and overlooked. Wow, that's beautiful. I could not agree more. I'm a student of history, and it makes a lot of sense that if you're in a workplace, find the older generations and ask questions about the history of the organization and the history of the industry. Wow, what perspective that would give you for thinking about how to take it forward. I I think the other thing I would say is have fun with this, right? I'll tell tell you an example where where I made a mistake and was not a perennial. I have a 12-year-old daughter and she uses TikTok. And all we read in the, oh, TikTok's a disaster. TikTok is going to ruin her body image. TikTok is horrible, blah, 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 blah. And I was sharing this with a group of of, um, early career employees. They were in their their 20s in an insurance company. And and I said, and I'm struggling with this because I I feel like I'm being very judgmental of thinking that TikTok is negative. And one of them said, have you ever sat down with your 12-year-old daughter and asked her to show you how she uses TikTok? And I said, I've never done that. And I sat with her and I said, would you show me, you know, how, oh my gosh, mom, okay. 
So this is what we do here. And she sort of walked me through side by side how she used TikTok. And it, yeah, there's some things I didn't like, but seeing it from her perspective was so valuable. And I had been judging it and assuming it was bad before looking at how she was really using it. So that sort of sitting side by side and sharing stories is so powerful. And we know how to do this because we do this in our families. We know our family history. The grandparents sit with the grandchild and talk about their lives side by side, respecting both. Use that knowledge that you know how to do personally in the workplace. Yeah. What you're saying, I would summarize as curiosity and empathy. Yes. All right, Lindsay. So as we wrap up here, we have a question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, what are you curious about and learning now? I am curious about how ChatGPT and generative AI are going to play out in the workplace. I think we are only at the tip of the iceberg of how the different generations are going to implement AI in the workplace. And that is where I am uh, placing my curiosity and my learning these days. Any prognostications for Gen AI for this year or next? is not getting worse. It is only going to get better and better and better. And to use it as a teaching tool and a learning tool and to be proactive about it, I think the companies that embrace this technology quickly, um, I think are going to have a leg up uh, against the future. And that's where I think our Gen Zs can really lead the way. I would sit and watch how a Gen Z uses ChatGPT instead of making assumptions about how they might and use that to learn how it could be valuable for a company. Just perfect. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Lindsay Pollock for joining me today on the podcast. Follow Leading Up, a podcast from Udemy Business, wherever you find your podcast. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode to help you level up your leadership skills. Follow the show so you never miss a new episode. And if you like the show, leave a rating or a review. We love the feedback and it really helps us to find new listeners. To learn more about Leading Up or how Udemy can help you develop leaders at scale and move business forward, visit business.udemy.com. The Leading Up podcast is produced in partnership with Pod People. Our original theme is by Soundboard.